0: And you, you, know, you list these things out, but what are the odds that there's like 200 of them that we know about? And in every case, 200 out of 200, the least likely thing happened.
1: I've been here for years, ordained by my peers, putting suckers in Sears, wearing bow ties for years. Tank top in tears, we beers. Making a change, finding the strange. Feeling deranged on the face, for firing range, rain down like a nine point two
2: progressive. Over your voting, we like to be guessing, accused of constantly a, a, a question. Breaking- hey everyone, welcome back to iHeartPCA, the podcast where we're talking about the Presbyterian Church in America uh denomination that we're in and we're trying to talk about the positive things in our denomination talk to people uh, accentuate the positive not sort of critique uh, our denomination as much although there are critiques that can be made for sure and so i'm doug servan i'm a pastor here at city prez in oklahoma city and i'm with my friend justin edgar who is a pastor in albuquerque at also city prez so justin how are you what are you doing this week I'm good, man. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, living the
1: quarantine life, bro. How about you?
2: Yeah. um, It's always hard to exactly say what I'm doing all day, every day, but it spreads out and I guess it's stuff,
1: right? Yeah. Or even remembering what day it is. Like it is Friday, I think. I think it's Friday.
2: I wanted to ask you about one of the things. uh, We're on a Zoom meeting. Not everyone else can see that. But Justin has a golden rooster in the background. So I just want to ask you about that golden rooster, Justin. What is that? A golden rooster is
1: an award that you get uh, here at City Press for uh, being a volunteer. So each uh, Christmas, right around Christmas season, we do a big party. And uh, with good food and drink, and we award awards. It's kind of like our version of the Office Dundee Awards. Um, We basically use the same spirit of those awards. We think of awards for each of our volunteers, some of the funny, quirky things that they do, and then we give them an award for that. How's that gone over? It's been great. Yeah, we we love it. Um, It was so good that you copied it. One of the few things you've copied me on
2: that I have. I did copy it. Yet. And I think personally improved on it. We have people in our church give them out into the community and then they take pictures and it's sort of amazing. And people love to get an award. I actually had one guy who I gave it's a best jukebox song picker. And I gave him the award at a place where I write my sermons and he like cried because he hadn't gotten an award for like 15 years. And so like, this meant a lot to him. And this is a profound moment. Um, so that's amazing. I am thankful that you gave me that idea and it's a great idea. Yeah.
1: It, it, it's been fun for us. And so my staff does a great job like thinking of names and uh, I love to emcee the events and give it out, but I'm glad you've improved upon it. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that idea next year.
2: Well, we are here today with iHeartPCA with one of my friends and Justin's friends, Ray Kanata. So Ray is a pastor at Redeemer Church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New Orleans. Uh, And so Ray has a lot of things going on, which we're going to get to. But first, I just wanted to say, Ray, thanks for being on. Why don't you just introduce yourself to everyone who you are, and then I'm going to ask you how you got into the PCA so you can like merge those questions together.
0: Uh, well, yeah, from, uh, from New York City, originally out of boroughs and then lived in the, the burbs of Jersey from uh, junior high on and um, uh, came down to New Orleans, uh, about, let's see, a couple months after Katrina and been here ever since, Here for life. And how
2: did you get in the PCA? Like, were you did you plan on this nomination? I don't <laughs> think you did.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I wasn't raised in a in a, a church-going home, and I um I uh was in college, and I was I, I went to Catholic high school, and I was I uh, had I was I overthink everything, so I was I was obsessed about a lot of things, and the bigger the issue, the more I get obsessed with it. So I got a little obsessed with my mortality at one point. And I decided priests were good people to talk to about that. So I, but there was a layperson who taught theology my junior year, Mr. Rosenelli, and he was utterly wonderful. I found out he was a sacramental minister. He could, um, he could give out the host uh, at this chapel, and nobody knew we even had across the street in the rectory, across the street from a high school. I found out about this during lunch period. Every day he would go over there, and he'd wait to hand out the host to, uh, to people that the priests had blessed. And in my experience, no one ever went over the entire time. And, you know, the whole year that I went over there, I was the only one. So I'd go and I didn't, I'd never been confirmed. So I didn't take communion, but I would just, because I had a captive audience, I just ask him my questions, you know, and he was super patient and super kind. And so he kind of planted some seeds in me. Uh, I still wasn't a Christian. I got to college and in college, I took a bunch of religion classes and long short of it was I, I was in a world religions class with a professor. it was the professors typical, you know, just sort of loved everything except Christianity, you know. And, but he said, they're all sort of the same. It was the, you know, the IBM card thing, the illustration they use in the eighties, you know, and, uh, everything's sort of another path up to God. And, uh, I kind of didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't agree with that. I was, I was 19, but I could see something different. I I realized that, well, every other religion, despite the outer trappings and the flavor they have and the traditions they have that may be similar. The thing that makes them the same is every other religion has a way where you save yourself. You know, you, you break out of the cycle rebirth by working on your karma you pay something, you learn some secret, you do some ritual, or whatever, to get out of this predicament, whether there's a God or just a power in the universe is always a way to move forward that involves you doing something or you believing something, or you giving something. And only Christianity said that, uh, was sort of stood alone as, as the one religion I realized that sort of uh, said, no, God does the doing for you. And it was all by grace and kind of freaked me out thinking that you know, 12 uneducated fishermen came up with this you know, in a backwater place that never had a building more than 45 feet high and had no other literature to speak of besides the Bible. And yet they came up with the only unique idea in religious history, really, that sets them apart from everybody else of the thousands of religions. And then no one's copied it. You know, you get Islam and you get Mormonism, you get Scientology, you get all these others that come later. And they go back to the old formula, even if they incorporate and co-opt a lot of the Christian language and story and all that, they go back to saving yourself. That freaked me out. I, I couldn't believe that that came anywhere but from above, you know, and that was really the tipping point for me. So uh, so I came to faith. And when I did, uh, I knew very few Christians. I didn't really like the Christians on campus that much. And for my own, you know, hang ups. And uh, so I got myself a Mead's Handbook of Denomination out of the library and i started reading it cover to cover and decided i was going to find out what denomination i, was. I ended up visiting 20 25 different churches but and a lot of some cults and stuff too but i ended up deciding that i was going to find the one that was most focused on grace and at least on paper and that was presbyterian and so I ended up at a PCA church, and it, was, it ended up being the one that, that more students from my college at Wake Forest went to than any other church in town. And the InterVarsity chapter, it wasn't an RUF at the time, there is now, but the InterVarsity chapter was dominated by PCA people. And In fact, the former director of it had become the pastor at the PCA church, and so that's how I got kind of plugged in with that. And then coincidentally, a bunch of other things. I, I got a hold of these Steve Brown tapes. I don't know if anybody remembers Steve Brown from Key Life. I went on spring break uh, down to Kebas Kane to visit, some, to, to you know, to, to party, and I needed some money from my mom. My mom wouldn't send me any money until I uh, until I went and go visited some cousins, and they were all Catholic. But one uh, one cousin became an EPC pastor, and he took me. And it was on a Sunday, and, and my my girlfriend at the time, who became my wife now of twenty nine years, was with us, and she had visited this church before too. That was Kibbuz Cain Presbyterian. So I went there. I signed the guest book, and I started getting the tapes. And now, a couple of years later, when I had this conversion experience, I started listening to all these tapes. I had a car accident. I was on a couch for a while. And uh, I listened to 250 um, Steve Brown tapes. (laughs) I found a physical therapist who worked for my parents who uh, also had these tapes. I borrowed his. And I listened to 500 Steve Brown sermons in one summer. And uh, that got me uh, got me Presbyterian reformed, I guess, or whatever. So then you eventually went to Princeton and got an MDiv, right? Yeah, I did an MDiv and I was I interned at a PCA church and then uh, was really, uh, went there to, to get uh, to, as first step to get a PhD and teach American history and um, uh, was starting to feel a lot of feedback that I should go into ministry. So that confused me. So I stayed and I got a fellowship for a THM with a little stipend and all my tuition covered. I got to keep my housing. So I stayed and did this, this sweet THM deal, hoping that that would help me sort of figure it out. I still was very, very reluctant to go into ministry, so I ended up taking a job at Princeton. I was the assistant um, archivist and rare book collection. The Princeton Seminary has a larger rare book collection than Westminster Covenant Seminary's entire libraries. It's 150,000 volumes of rare books, you know, and manuscripts, so a uh, ridiculous collection, really wonderful, and so that was a lot of fun, but that was more of a hobby than a career, and I did that for about a year and a half while I continued to be on staff at this church part-time as an intern until finally they created the assistant pastor job for me. I took that and got ordained, got ordained at Princeton on campus. And um, uh, about a year into that, the past senior pastor uh, announced he was leaving and recommending me to take his job, not in my not in my um, you know career path uh, ideas, but that's how that happened. But uh, yeah, that's how I ended up in the PCA. I've stayed in the PCA, you know, more or less in a lot of ways for the same reasons. I still think it's a place of grace at its best. I also felt like as I became more sort of a... A uh, person who appreciated sort of the uh, the broader traditions of the church Catholic. feel like I can be sort of a uh, a Christian who is able to incorporate elements from all different traditions. As a you know what they used to call the via media, you know the center of the Christian faith. I feel like a uh, sort of a Bible believing Reformed uh, Presbyterian is a good place to be for incorporating a lot of the sacramental traditions and the liturgical traditions and a lot of the other things in the church feel like it's a it's a good place to be for that you're not off on the limb and being sort of a Zwinglian or off on the limb with transubstantiation but you're in a you're in a good place where you can live those things out I'm glad I chose the PCA to be honest with for all its problems and I don't really want to focus on those but they got plenty
2: well let me ask you then Ray about moving to New Orleans and like why you decided to do that and uh, you've probably talked about post-Katrina lots of times but maybe not in a while. So what what was it like to, you basically replanted a church in the
0: midst of a disaster? Yeah. So I was, uh, I'd been 14 years at the only church I'd ever really been at. Only the second one I've ever been a member at even. I don't, and only the one in North Carolina, I'd been a member at about a year. And then I go to seminary and right away, I intern at this church, join it. I'm there 14 years. So I'm 37 years old and um, been senior pastor there for a while. And we built a building Uh, first building, first new building in that town in 50 years, Bridgewater, New Jersey in central New Jersey, the richest County in America. And, uh, is the first new building in the Presbytery, Metro New York Presbytery. I really was feeling, uh, more and more pulled to a different philosophy of ministry that involved, that really wasn't able to be done in in a suburban setting. I think anyway, I was, uh, really feeling antsy about that. But in the midst of that, I get a call while I was on a sabbatical working on a, on a, my, my dissertation. I get a, I get a call for, um, come visit this church in New Orleans. It's the only PCA church in the city of New Orleans. Uh, I've been there about four years. It was about 40 people on a given Sunday. So uh, anyway, so I, keep, so I was down there by Saturday, two days later with my, whole, with my family, with my, with my uh, two-year-old and my six-year-old and my wife and um, fell absolutely head over heels in love with the town and actually with the church in a way because it was just so, it, what everyone else saw is so bizarre and Different was to me like beautiful because it was so opposite of the setting I was in. I just really felt very um, like a misfit in the setting I was in. So I I, I kind of had an opposite view of how to look at it. Didn't have a moment free. We went out to music till late in the night. Fell asleep on his couch, you know. And uh, then not knowing I was candidating, I was just there sort of as his friend. And then uh, he pulls over on the way to the airport and says, "Okay, I need to know. Can I? You know, I know your sabbatical's ending soon. Can I? Can I have you down for a second interview like next weekend?" And I said, man, and that's six days away. Can I, can I talk to my wife about it? I haven't had a moment. He said, okay, but you got to call me back today. I said, okay, so get to the airport. I'm really nervous to tell my wife that I really want to come back for a second interview. She's really nervous to tell me she wants me to come back for a second interview. So that was nice. So I called him back up from the airport. I said, yeah, make me the flight. So he made me a flight for the day of Katrina. So I'm at Sesame Place, this amusement park in Pennsylvania with my kids, enjoying it. When I get a phone call from my friend, Matt Brown, he said, have you seen the news? You know, levees broke and all this. And so thought that was the end of it. So we reopened the church about three months after Katrina, you know, 80% of the city flooded, 50% of the city was destroyed. And so these people are all, you know, unemployed or worried about their jobs. All the friends had left. They all knew people who died. They are all trauma victims. And uh, I was the only one in the city I knew for a while who hadn't been through it. And we started rebuilding houses the first, uh, one of the first weekends, the first Easter, we had uh, 100 missionaries from three different teams while we had maybe 30 people from our church. But we added about 120 new people in the church in the first 18 months, that's the good news. The bad news is we lost 60 of those 120 in the first 18 months. So we had this massive front door and this massive back door, uh, but we inched forward. And uh, when the smoke cleared, we worked on the houses longer than any other church I know, we worked on it in the whole city, worked on it for eight years. And so
1: now New Orleans is your home, right? I mean, it's all you uh, think about and live in and all that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's everything to me. I mean, I really do love this place. I feel like the city's changed me more than I've changed the city, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say that New Orleans reminds me uh, more, it's more than any place else I know in America. It reminds me of heaven, and it reminds me of hell. You know, it's I think it's got a great biblical picture of what heaven's supposed to look like in a way that the churches can learn from. It's a place of sharing. It's a place of grace. It's a place of diversity. It's a place lived real diversity, not politically correct diversity. You know, it's a place of celebration. It's celebration capital of the country. Place of feasting. You know, that's what we see in the scriptures about what heaven's supposed to be like. That's what Jesus uses as his parables uh, for what heaven's like. It's a feast. You know. Uh, Difference is they don't really know why they're feasting. It's because eternity has been written on the heart, but they don't realize that, man, you know, it's because the bridegroom's returning. That's why God's put this on your heart, you know? And so we can add that to the ingredient to the gumbo. You can tell people why, give them a reason to feast, not just to forget their troubles. It's also the place of hell, you know? It's like, Highest murder rate, I think, for the first 10 years I was here, maybe 12 years I was here, highest murder rate every year. At one point, we are up to about 100 per hundred thousand. worse than Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, you know, Mexico, I think, was the main place in Mexico, had a higher murder rate than New Orleans did for a while. Uh, poverty, uh, Worst school system in the country for a long time before the Katrina. 128 public schools, 126 of them, I think, were failing. Um you know, it's, it was a mess and uh, still is a mess in a lot of ways. Uh, a heritage of racism and exclusion and uh, uh, very secular. What it doesn't have is the stuff in between. And most of America is, builds itself on the stuff in between. It's all purgatory. It's all shopping malls. People, it, it, it just it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of banality. And New Orleans is great because I think you need hell to know what you need to redeem. You need a project, a mission, and you need some heaven in your community so you can have something to celebrate. And I think New Orleans is great if you can find that balance because you have lots to celebrate and lots to fix. You don't have the stuff in between. And I tell people, no matter where you live, look for the hell, look for the heaven and, and live there. You know, move towards that stuff and celebrate stuff and fix stuff and try to avoid all the stuff that the culture tries to sell you, the monoculture sells you, which is the stuff in between. That's the stuff that not waste your time on, you know? And the nice thing is, it's not that hard to do that in New Orleans. It's all heaven or hell. There's not much in between. Courts
3: are always come talking I Heart PCA, the podcast, is made possible by White Blackbird Books. They are about to rival the big dogs in New York, but right now they're content to help promote what is important, good, theological, and relevant. They love to help the church. Listeners might consider getting a copy of Choosing a Church, a biblical and practical guide. Jonathan Stoddard put together this short book that is helpful for anyone in this predicament. And pastors should have this on their book table. You've no doubt heard of Rooted, a book written by Ray Canada and Josh Retano. It works through the Apostles' Creed. White Blackbird published the second, even better edition. And Ray will probably send you something if you buy it, read it, and review it. iHeartPCA The podcast is also brought to you by the coronavirus pandemic. That's why the hosts had the time.
2: Ray, we're doing like short answer. I'm going to go, and then Justin's going to go asking you a question. So make it as quick and concise as possible. What is a crew? Like, is it uh, K-C-R-E-W? I don't know what a crew is.
0: (laughs) It's K-R-E-W-E. And these are traditional sort of social aid and pleasure clubs, what they were called sometimes. But they're like fraternities or sororities or co-ed versions of that. They, uh, the big ones throw their own parades, and the smaller ones, sub-crews like mine, will participate uh, with those other parades. And also they have a social and a... Uh, sort of, um, uh, they'll have a justice function too. They do charitable things and social things throughout the year. In 2003, it was really the second one in the city after this one called the Pussyfooters that was a female one. And they'll all have a theme. And now there's dozens and dozens of them, but we were kind of pioneers in that. I wasn't in it then, of course. I I joined in
1: 2010. So uh, Ray, tell me about The Man Who Ate New Orleans.
0: Ah, okay. So I was, uh, it's a film that was made, a 92 minute documentary, ran all the PBS stations in the country. And, but it's a film that was made. uh, I'm the man who ate New Orleans. And I realized that if I wanted to really get in deep into the culture here, I had to get deep in the food culture. And so I decided I was going to sample everything. And I started to make lists and I started eating through them. And it was just, just to do that, to make sure that I wasn't missing out on things and to be sort of disciplined about it. And one of the missionaries that came down to work on a house down here was a filmmaker, a budding filmmaker, and he heard about this. And he decided he would make a little short film about it for sort of promotional things for us. I thought that was a funny idea. Originally, it was going to be 15 minutes. Then he got Morgan Sporlock involved, the guy from Super Size Me, and got a bunch more funding from that. And it just grew and grew and grew. And next thing you know, it was movie trucks and a big crew and weeks of filming. And uh, what happened was I ate at every single non-chain uh, restaurant within the city limits, which at the time was about 800 restaurants and about four new restaurants were opening up per week. So it was a little bit of a challenge even just to maintain the list. But in order to eat there, I felt like I needed to eat with someone else. Cause if you eat by yourself, that's binging, you eat with someone else. It's, it's feasting, right? Can be. And, um, so I, uh, so I, I, I made it uh, a goal to eat every single place and I was able to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but really the film it's, uh, is more about, sort of seven values of the city, and each one is assigned uh, different uh, meal places that are iconic that sort of reflect that value. And it talks about the challenges to that value since Katrina and what I've witnessed as a transplant trying to community build here since I've been here and just reveling. But it's really we call it a tasty love letter to the city. So it's really an introduction to the city's culture. It was on the it was on the front page of those cover story of the Times and the big daily newspaper, and the, and a bunch of magazines here and TV and stuff like that. And it's uh, I still get recognized and um, yeah. Ray, tell me about GA trading cards. Yeah. So, uh, well, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're in the center of that too, Doug. I know, but, uh, yeah. Does anybody tracked how many trading cards there are now? It's a great, you know, one of the things I like about it is there's lots of people at GA and you want to, there's some, I see people in the room and I've heard about their work and some people I don't know. And, uh, it's great because it gives you an excuse to go over and make a conversation, trade cards with them. Hey, do you have a card and here's mine. And, uh, it's kind of a fun way to roast each other too. I mean, I make them for other people too. As you've seen, I made one for you, uh, make some satirical ones. And, uh, it's a nice way to kind of make fun of each other and tease each other a little bit, but also celebrate each other.
1: Uh, right. Tell me about the heaven and hell of new
0: Orleans, uh, sports fandom. I moved to New Orleans and everybody, there's not one shut in, there's not one granny, there's nobody who doesn't, who can't tell you intelligently about the saints and who's, who's just got traded and doesn't own some paraphernalia. So I realized I needed to get into it. And so since I've been here, I've never missed a game. And uh, one time I, uh, I did, I was guest preaching, uh, on a Sunday and of course I'd still watch the games, but I, I was away and I was in a certain town, I won't name It was very Sabbatarian, this PCA church, and they're very, very kind people, and it was a wonderful church. But I realized very quickly they weren't going to send me home. I spoke in the morning, and then I had to speak again in the evening at this mission conference. And I realized they would send me home if they found out I was watching the Saints game in between. (laughs) That was just unacceptable. So uh, I was in a quadri. I would miss my first Saints game. So uh, back then, it was before you could live stream. This was like maybe 2008 or something. So I started texting my wife, and she would text me the scores during the thing. And I'd be talking to the to the elders about stuff, and I was fundraising, of course, while I was there for the mission work we were doing. In the middle, I would get really excited. What happened? what happened? Oh, nothing. I just got some good news, and then I get I'd, I'd let out you know uh, uncontrollable whines, you know, and stuff. And they were like, "Well, was, uh, bad news from back home, and you know, pray for me, you know." But it was, <laughs> but I did I did. That's the only game I've missed. But I kind of felt like I was sort of halfway there, but. Yeah, I go to games now, too. I do, I'll do. go three or four games a season. Ray, anyway. tell me about the... I'm also a Big Easy Roller Girl fan, by the way, too. That's my second favorite sports team locally. But we'll have to talk about that. I was a cheerleader for a while for the Big Easy Roller Girls. Roller right. girls. Can yeah. you tell me about the LSU Tigers? I don't know anything about them. I mean, I'm sure they're great. Uh, I think they won last year something big, right? They won a championship or something. But, mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, I'm supportive of it. I mean, it's my, saint, my state and everything. But you know, I don't really know much about it. I haven't been to a game or anything. Uh, they're, they're, there's fans around here. I've seen them.
1: Tell me about uh, your favorite live venue in New Orleans and uh,
0: maybe your ah. favorite per- performance at that live venue. And so I go out to a lot. We have, we have, I don't know, 100 or more music venues in the city, several really good ones in our neighborhood. I don't know if I have a favorite at all. I mean, some favorite bands. And Rebirth Brass Band is certainly uh, amazing. They played at my party. At my, they called it The Last Supper. It was the last meal on my list for my movie. And we rented out this big hall it was a black tie affair and we honored all these famous chefs that were there. Anyway, Rebirth Brass Band showed up and did a, uh, a second line through the middle of the, of the hall, which was, I mean, I can die now, you know? Okay. So I just got one more and
2: then we're going to move to rooted. So just real quick, what is the SJC and why are you on it? And why is it
0: awesome? <laughs> uh, the SJC is the Supreme Court of the PCA. It's where you go. If you have a complaint, you, 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 you're supposed to bring it to the person, a la uh, Matthew 18. But then when that's not resolved, you could bring it to the local session if it's, a, if it's a congregational issue. And then from there, they can you can appeal to the presbytery. The presbytery would probably bring a committee to study it and then bring a recommendation to presbytery. And if you still uh, aren't satisfied... Or if it's a press period issue where there's a complaint, then it ends up, uh, if everything's in order and filed in time, it goes to the standard judicial commission. It's an elected committee of 20, commission of 24 of us. There's no appeal above it. The rulings are final. And I am one of the 12 pastors that's on it. I was elected to it um, in, I don't remember when, like six, seven years ago. And I always said it's my least favorite job that I've ever had in ministry, hands down. I've just really not felt like I was well wired for this job. But I'm growing to appreciate it more and more. And the thing I like about it is the people I get to spend time with in our meetings. Thanks for your service in that. So
2: let's, I just want to talk for a couple minutes about your book, Rooted with Raytano, and how that came to be, what it's been like to
0: have that out, uh, what you want people to know about it when we are planning this church and I really didn't have a lot of experience in doing the things I was supposed to be doing. What I found was I was having a, I was having an outreach whether or not they came to all them came to church. I was certainly having an outreach to a whole lot more people that were unchurched. And I was really struggling to figure out a way to communicate the basics of the faith so we can move forward. So the meat, so we get to the, you know, from the milk to the meat sort of stuff. And I started, uh, you know, developing this idea. I'd done a Sunday school series on Apostles Creed back in New Jersey, where I had been. And I thought, wow. Well, let me let me try to flesh this out into a sermon series and some other things. And as we developed this uh, through the church plant, it really became very very helpful. And there was a reason why the Apostles' Creed has stood the test of time now for two thousand years. It's been so helpful to people in all different cultures and all different denominations and all different traditions. Uh, again and again, it's been such a great resource and I realized why, uh, trying to apply it to my, to my setting. And so at the same time, Josh Rutano, he'd been one of my interns in, and when he was at Princeton, when I was ministering near there and, uh, we were, we were best friends and, and, uh, he, uh, he was planning a church then a few years later in, um, in, in the city of Cincinnati and very similar to our church And, uh, but just for Cincinnati and he decided to do a similar thing and he used some of my material and he improved on a lot of it. And then we started, uh, realizing that, uh, people started asking for some of the material and we thought, oh, why don't we just make this available to more people? We started, uh, editing it back and forth and, and, and putting it in book form and it kind of took off and became a life of its own. And, uh, now it's in a second revised edition. We expanded it last year and, uh, put out it, uh, in November, this past November, a, a second edition and we get we have lutherans and episcopals and baptists and all kinds of people using it uh i've i've given it out to a lot of unchurched friends and then used it as a conversation starter afterwards and my own father actually my birth father came to faith through rooted uh you want to hear that story real quick or you have time yeah I'm for that? Yeah, okay. So he was a lifelong adherent of Native American spirituality since 15 years old. And when I say an adherent, it wasn't something he dabbled in. It was his whole life. It was the only thing he was interested in. He never had a sports team. He never had a band. He never had anything else. He was interested in women. He was married seven times. He's interested in women and uh, Indian stuff. That's it. So he was adopted into the Mandan Indian tribe, uh, a tribe that Lewis and Clark stayed with out. Uh, it's a Plains tribe. Anyway, he lived on that reservation on all for about 10 years. He went through some trials himself and became an adopted uh, person in some of the clubs, kind of crews, so to speak, of the uh, Mandans. And uh, he wrote a self-published book and two editions on his Mandan spirituality, on Native American spirituality. And he was a guy who really, in his book, kind of despises uh, Christianity and all this, what he calls sky religions. Well, we became very, very close and He really loved me. And we we really grew together last few years. And I read his book 15 or 20 times. I mean, just I was fascinated by it. And he uh, never really read my book. And it was kind of funny because he was such a reader. I mean, he was just rifling through books constantly. And uh, finally, one time I hadn't talked to him in a few days, I called him up and I realized it was the year anniversary for when I gave him the book. And he had read, uh, rooted through, uh, three times, uh, hadn't gone to sleep in days and 106 questions for me, started reading. And so we got, we worked our way through about 10 or 15 of those. And at the end he said, I I think I want to be a Christian. And so, uh, and it it stuck and he became a kind of a funky, strange Christian, but he became a Christian and he, uh, last two years of his life, he, uh, self-identified that way. And, uh, And it really, he was the most unlikely convert in the world. And it happened with unaided, just reading rooted. So I thought, man, if Rudy could convert my dad, it could convert anybody. So, um, you know, by God's grace, God uses his word in all kinds of ways. And it's really just, uh, one, just another way of celebrating his word. That's incredible. Great story. Thanks for sharing that.
1: Yeah.
2: Amen. I appreciate that story too. And I'm thankful for the book and it's a great book. So, This is a podcast we're asking you to maybe subscribe, leave a review, share with others. You know, we got a Facebook group with White Blackbird, um, and, you know, we're trying to have conversations about this. Do something good out there in the world in the midst of craziness. Maybe pick up this book yourself and read it. And, uh, you know, Ray has a Facebook page for Rooted, and he's like rabid about it no surprise. So you could like post on there and he'll probably come over to your house. I don't know. I mean, who knows what he's going to do. So like, we want you to do that and work on uh, engaging with each other and be positive. Amen. And sh-
1: share the book around, right? And yeah. when you do take a picture with yourself in the book and post it on the Facebook page. There you go. Tell us about conspiracy thir- theories. We didn't get to that. That's a big part of kind of uh, what you're into. So, all
0: right. Well, you got to have me back one time to just talk about this. I, I have uh, I have something that I do called Tinfoil Fest, and I'm the sole speaker Tinfoil Fest every year. Uh, I live on Magazine Street. and My office is on Magazine Street in Uptown, um, well, less than a mile from the last place that Lee Harvey Oswald lived before he moved to Dallas a few months before he killed the president. So, uh, if he, and all the, you know, the JFK movie, the Oliver Stone movie. And, uh, if you, if you get involved in it, in the conspiracy at all, it all centers on New Orleans. If, if, if he was, if he was in fact involved with other people who was in New Orleans, I actually owned the mirror that he would have looked into in his apartment in, in, on Magazine Street, believe it or not, they never touched that place. It was a wreck and 50 something years later, uh, they finally renovated and my buddy, Lives across the street from it, and so he would dumpster dive for me. And he pulled the mirror out that came out of uh, the house, and so I have it now in my uh, in my study. Uh, I have a mirror, and I also have a brick from Lee Harvey uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald walked over uh, to get into his front yard front door. So anyway, uh, yeah, here's what I say about: I'm not big on conspiracy theories in general, but we all believe in conspiracy theories because uh, people conspire. People in our churches conspire. I've never met a church where people don't conspire together at some point, uh, God, you know, uh, sadly, you know, to uh, you know, do in other people, uh, get them out of a committee, uh, fire their pastor, uh, you know, uh, nations conspire. And generally speaking, uh, the more powerful you are, the more opportunities you have to conspire, right? And so people conspire all the time. The ones that we know about are the ones that get caught. There's millions we don't know about. We know Hitler and Stalin conspire together to invade Poland when no one expected them to, right? Uh, The last people in the world to conspire together, right wing, left wing. Right. But they did it. And um, uh, people conspire. So just because something's conspiracy uh, doesn't mean it didn't happen. And uh, I was very skeptical about it. But in the the summer of 2011, I had a sabbatical and decided I was going to read nothing theological for the first time in decades and so I would just read about one thing. I decided I'm going to do JFK. So I, got the, I picked out the best anti-conspiracy and best pro-conspiracy book, book I could find, read through them, and at the end of it, I was like, this is weird. So the way I look at it is uh, you can't overwhelmingly prove by any one of the things that people point out that point towards conspiracy. None of them are a complete smoking gun. There's always a yeah, but, and the yeah, but is plausible often, or at least possible. But I just look at it this way. I can make a list for you of 200 things where, where the most likely explanation to an outside observer that knew nothing about it would be conspiracy. And in each case, it, unlikely things happen. So in each case, you could say, yeah, but it was this way. You get shot from behind, but you, your head goes back instead of forward because there's a nerve that makes you do that, right? That's, it's counterintuitive, but it happens, right? Sure. And you, you, know, you list these things out, but what are the odds that there's like 200 of them that we know about? And in every case, 200 out of 200, uh, the least likely thing happened, right? Uh, not the most likely thing. So it's sort of Occam's razor like this. You know, the simplest explanation is usually true. In this case, in order mm-hmm. not to believe conspiracy, you have to say, well, no, Occam's razor doesn't apply 200 out of 200 times. Because it applies once, there's your conspiracy, you know? And so I really do believe that uh, that um, that someone else is involved. I never could say I knew who it was until now. I actually do know... Who was involved with? Uh, one of the people involved. And I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to. I don't want to uh, spoil it. But I'm going to reveal it in November. One other thing I'd say really quickly for the skeptics uh, there, uh, and I understand people being skeptical, but I would just say this: uh, if you're going to say which is more likely to be a credible, uh, to give a credible uh, verdict, would it be the Warren Commission that was thrown together, seven people thrown together hastily right after the assassination and reported within a year? Very, very busy people, including the Supreme Court Justice, uh, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Also, by the way, the head of the CIA who was fired by JFK a few months before. That's another weird one. But, uh, you know, Alan Dulles. But anyway, would it be that one or would it be the one that came 14 years later that had all the information, including the secret files that the 63 one had, but also had all the new information that had been gathered in the last 14 years, had no political pressure, people were over it then, and uh, had a much larger budget and much more time. Which one's going to be more likely to be accurate? And you look at the verdict and the 77 one is way more positive towards the conspiracy than the 63 one was, you know? And so... Uh, That's something to think about. You know, I noticed you didn't ask that one at the beginning of this interview because uh, then no one would have listened to anything I said after that.
2: So we've had a great time. Uh, We've uncovered so many things and we've teased future conversations. I know that I've been at Ray's house and I have seen this string board. I've also seen a lot of other things that I don't know how to explain. And maybe we could do like a, a Cribs, a whole episode with Ray. And also I have talked with Ray at General Assembly on this only topic about JFK for at least an hour, you know, I mean, he just tip of the iceberg. So, so this is like future stuff, but really, Ray, we appreciate talking to you about this and these things and these opinions. And we could, we could do this for a long time, but I'm so thankful for you and for your ministry and for your friendship and for what you're doing in our denomination for you and your wife and your kids. And so thank you for being on with us. This is I heart PCA. We're talking about what's good in the PCA. Maybe also what's sort of weird in the PCA year. and <laughs> those might do the same thing, right? Uh, yeah. sometimes. So everyone stay tuned. Cause the PCA courts are always hard. You come talking that trash will pull your card. We're both in thin- out of the old guard yard We would never disregard I heart PCA Die heart PCA